1: Hello everyone.
0: I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Irina Shapiro about her Redmond and Hayes novels. The latest book in the series, Murder on the Sea Witch, came out a couple of months ago. My interviews with Sherry Thomas and Andrea Penrose seem to have put me in some kind of sweet spot in terms of Amazon recommendations for mysteries set in Victorian England. Although Irina Shapiro's novels are also set in that period, they contain an interesting twist. One of the investigators is a U.S. Civil War veteran trying to reconcile his philosophy of life and his past with an inheritance he's never quite sure he wants. We'll talk more about him in a moment, but for now, let's set the scene. The museum had finally closed, the lofty halls echoing with Mason Platt's footsteps as he hurried through the silent rooms toward the rear of the building, where the storerooms were located. Mason was giddy with excitement as he pushed open the door marked private and trotted into the vast space beyond. It had been empty this morning, but now the area was full of crates, the shipment from the Sea Witch having finally arrived a few hours ago, the caravan of wagons delayed by heavy traffic from Southampton. Mason had to admit that he liked the name of the vessel and found it appropriate to the cargo it had carried. A sea witch was a mythical creature, someone found in legends and spooky stories told by sailors, as were some of the artifacts that had been stored in its spacious hold. Up until a few years ago, mummies and hieroglyphs had been the stuff of legend, but now the museum had its very own Egyptian hall filled with breathtaking artifacts, the display open to the public, rich and poor alike, able to see the glorious finds for the price of an admission ticket. Maybe one day archeologists would find a sea witch, Mason mused as he gazed around the room, his heart thumping with anticipation. A mermaid skeleton would be nearly as exciting as the unique find he was about to behold. And now, please join me in welcoming Irina Shapiro. Hi, Irina. I look forward to talking with
1: you today. Thank you, Carolyn. I look forward to talking with you as well.
0: Before we start, tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write fiction.
1: Well, if you asked me when I was a kid what I wanted to be, I would tell you that I wanted to be a writer. Because to me, that was the ultimate choice of career. That was Better than being a rock star or an astronaut or even an archaeologist. And the fact that I am living the dream is still a source of wonder to me. But I didn't start writing until I was in my late 30s. I left my job as a logistics manager to stay at home with my autistic son, who just wasn't doing very well and wasn't making any progress. And I was miserable and depressed. And I really needed an emotional and an intellectual outlet of some sort. And that's when I tried writing. And I have to say that the stories came surprisingly easily. And I never looked back.
0: You have four other book series as well as this one. Uh, What can you tell us about them very briefly and how each group of novels differs from the others?
1: When I started to write my first series, it was never going to be a series. It was going to be just the one book. But then people kept asking me to continue the story. I was deep into the Outlander series at the time. This was before it was a TV show. And I was just really intrigued with this idea of a modern day person finding themselves at some point in history without any of the resources that we have available to us now or any way to return back to the present and how they would acquit themselves and how they would find a way to survive. So my first two series, the Hands of Time and the Wonderland series, which um, has certain comparisons to Alice in Wonderland, those are both time travel series. My third series, I wanted to do something a little bit different, and I didn't want to be tied in to one specific historical period. So I wrote a series called The Echoes from the Past, which is about an archaeologist called Quinn Ellenby, who has a very special gift. She can see into the past when holding an object that belonged to the dead. So she hosts the series, The Echoes from the Past, and on every episode, she delves into what happened to the person whose remains she has uncovered. So they're all dual timeline books. And the modern, uh, the modern section covers the life of Quinn and her own personal issues and her romance and her own uh, mystery. And every book covers a different historical period and a different character from the past. And that series had evolved into nine books, and people are still asking me to continue it. Uh, a new series that I'm working on is the Nicole Rayburn Mysteries, and they're basically about a novelist who delves into unsolved mysteries and tries to figure out what actually happened to the people, and she turns them into best-selling novels. And, of course, there's the Men and Haze.
0: You're incredibly prolific, as that description of your various series indicates. Uh, You put a book out every three months, at least, as far as I can tell. Um, How do you manage to get so many books out so quickly without compromising quality? And I do want to uh, emphasize, for the sake of our listeners, that the novels are both captivating and well-written.
1: Well, I have been doing this for about 15 years now, and I write seven days a week. And I'm a bit of an insomniac, so that's when I get my best ideas. So I plot what I'm going to write at night when I can't sleep, and then I get up and I just knock it out.
0: Good for you. I'm impressed. <laughs> so what inspired you to write Murder in the Crypt, the first Redmond and Hayes novel?
1: I really wanted to write a mystery series because I was a little tired of writing historical fantasy and gothic romance. And I I love a good mystery just as a reader. But I wanted to give it a slightly different twist, because everybody usually has a detective and a sidekick. But I wanted to give it a slightly different treatment, which is why I have a British detective and an American surgeon. So they sort of um, spark off each other.
0: Yeah, they do. Uh, Tell us first about Jason Redmond, the American that I mentioned in my introduction. What is his central conflict, especially early in the series?
1: In the beginning of the series, Jason is a little bit lost. He has come back from the American Civil War. He had been a prisoner of war in a Confederate um, prisoner of war camp. And when he returned back to New York, his life sort of imploded. His parents had died. His fiance had married somebody else. And because both his father and his grandfather had died, he had inherited a title and an estate in England, which he really wants nothing to do with because he finds the whole thing very bourgeois but he travels to England to dispose of his grandfather's estate and he plans to leave as soon as everything is resolved. But life has its own plan as it usually does. And how
0: does he meet up with Daniel Hayes in that first book?
1: Jason arrives in the village of Birch Hill Hill, where his grandfather's estate is a few hours before the victim is murdered. So because he is the only outsider and of course he is the evil American, Daniel, who is uh, the parish constable, immediately suspects him of the crime. And he comes to Redmond Hall to question Jason and to uh, basically accuse him of being responsible for the murder. And uh, Jason immediately explains himself and offers to help because he is a surgeon and he offers to look at the body and see if he could help Daniel find any clues as to the murder.
0: Daniel has issues of his own uh, that continue to plague him throughout this series. Uh, Specifically early on, his marriage is in trouble
1: and he's not too happy with the state
0: of his career. Can you tell us about that?
1: In the beginning, before the series starts, Daniel is a constable in London. They used to call them Peelers after Robert Peel, who had created the police force. But Daniel's son, Felix, dies in a horrific accident when he's three years old. And Daniel is forced to return back to the village of his birth with his wife, basically for the sanity of his wife, who just cannot get over the tragic accident and she can't find the strength to move on. So Daniel is a little bit trapped in the beginning of the series. He's trapped in a marriage that has gone cold and he is trapped in a in a career where he's got nowhere to go.
0: And how would you describe him as a personality?
1: Well, Daniel is, he's very conservative, he is a little bit provincial he is the exact opposite of jason he is, he's the type of person who had never considered certain issues until jason came along and jason is the sort of person who is more liberal and he's not afraid to talk about all those things that a victorian british gentleman would never dare discuss in public so they, they they're just a juxtaposition of each other
0: um, yes, and they become good friends, in fact, uh, in part because of those differences, I think.
1: Yes, and because they um, they instinctively understand that they can trust each other and they can rely on each other. And they each find in each other something that they have both been lacking.
0: So Daniel's wife, Sarah, has issues of her own, um, although they're certainly connected to Daniel's. And you mentioned uh, the death of their son, uh, which is a major issue for Sarah. But how would you describe her as a person?
1: Today, they would call somebody like her clinically depressed and say that she would need many, many hours of therapy. But in Victorian England, mental health was really not addressed. And Sarah cannot find a way out of this grief that's plaguing her and the guilt because she feels responsible for the death of their son. And she's just simply unable to get on with life. And Daniel is unable to to break through to her and to make her understand that this wasn't her fault and it's time to move on and they could have other children and they could still find a way to be happy.
0: And in fact, even when they do have another child, she's still, I mean, she's happier for a while, but she still struggles with it.
1: Well, depression is an illness and she's just not able, she doesn't have the tools to get past what she's feeling, the grief and the guilt, and also the idea that she replaced one child with another.
0: And of course, there's no one to help her, as you indicated. I mean, that The only consolation people have at this period is religious, which is not... Um, I mean, it can be helpful. For some people, it's very helpful, but it's not helpful for everyone.
1: In Victorian England, the only two treatments for women were a hysterectomy, which or which was a way to treat what they believed to be hysteria, or committing somebody to an asylum. And since Daniel doesn't want to see that happen to his wife, he basically just finds a way to compensate.
0: Jason also has a ward, Micah. Uh, tell us about a bit about him and their relationship.
1: Um, Micah is an Irish orphan who was a drummer boy in Jason's regiment when he was fighting in the American Civil War. And the drummer boys were sometimes as young as eight, nine years old, and Micah had come to war with his father and his brother. And after they had all been taken prisoner, the father and brother died. They starved to death in Andersonville Confederate prison. And Jason sort of unofficially adopted Micah, and he promised to help him find his sister Mary, who is his only surviving relative. But when they return to New York, they're unable to find any trace of Mary. So Micah just remains with Jason, and he's his unofficial son.
0: And that's a really horrific experience they share. Can you tell us a bit about the conditions at Andersonville?
1: Oh, The conditions at Andersonville Prison were documented extensively. It was basically an open space where hundreds of men were kept together. There was no facilities, There was no running water. There was no food. A lot of people died of disease and starvation. It was just really horrific. And uh, the, the director of this prison was eventually tried for crimes against humanity.
0: And both Jason and Micah have nightmares about their experience there.
1: Yes, they, they have what now would be termed as PTSD. But again, in those days, nobody paid much attention to mental health. And the only solution to nightmares or deep depression was laudanum.
0: So Daniel is a police officer. His involvement in solving a series of murders is easily explained. But uh, what draws Jason into helping him over and over again?
1: Well, like I said, when Jason first arrived in England, he felt a little bit lost and a little bit directionless. And he suddenly found a new purpose. He found that he loves the puzzle of solving a crime. And also, as a surgeon, he believes that a body has a lot to tell us as to how he died and about the killer and their method of murder and their mental state. So he volunteers his services because he genuinely wants to help people and he wants to see justice done.
0: So uh, we'll skip over the interim books because each one is connected to the one before and I don't want to give away too many plot points. Um, so give us a setup, please, for Murder on the Sea Witch. What is the site that Mason Platt beholds?
1: Well, Mason Platt is the director of the Egyptian section at the British Museum. And at the beginning of the book, he's very excited because a new shipment of artifacts had just come in on a sea from Egypt. And the vessel had docked at Southampton, and the crates have just been delivered to the British Museum. And there's one particular artifact that's going to be the star of the exhibit, which is this nearly perfect sarcophagus that contains a mummy. And when Mason Platt opens the crate and he opens the sarcophagus. What he finds inside is not the mummy, but the archaeologist, Blake Upton.
0: And this is 1870s or thereabouts. Um, So this is kind of the height in a sense of uh, Egyptological expedition of the colonial variety, right? I mean, it started with Napoleon uh, back in the early 19th century, but this is when people are really getting involved with it. So everything is kind of new and exciting uh, in terms of the artifacts themselves. Well,
1: people were obsessed with Egyptology at one point, And actually, in the course of my research, I found some really interesting things that people used to do. Like They used to have unwrapping parties. Where people would have a nice supper, and then they would retire to another room where a mom mummy would be laid out on the table, and they would just all unwrap the mummy together, and this was their form of entertainment. And actually, if if they found something in the folds of the wrapping, like seeds, what they would do is they would plant them, and they would call them mummy wheat. So uh, it was it was all a little bit gruesome, but also from today's perspective, it it was just funny that the fact that they this is what they did
0: yes you can kind of imagine these days it would be on ebay or something you know? <laughs> see it's of an ancient mummy i mean it's it's pretty bizarre yes um so this take this is all taking place in london uh so how does daniel get involved
1: at the end of book six six something happens that causes a further rift between Daniel and Sarah. And I don't want to give it away because it's kind of a major plot twist. But Daniel just feels that he needs a little bit of space and he really needs to regroup. And he's offered a position in Scotland Yard as an inspector, and he accepts it because he thinks that uh, this this will help his marriage and this will help his career. So Murder on the Sea Witch is actually his first murder case with Scotland Yard.
0: And how does he justify bringing in Jason?
1: He's understandably nervous because this is his big case, and he doesn't want to embarrass himself. And throughout the books, you could see that Daniel is a little bit insecure, and he's always comparing himself to Jason, who is, you know, pretty brilliant. And he writes to Jason, and he asks Jason if he would help him. And Jason is only too happy to help out because he misses working with Daniel, and this is an interesting case.
0: Tell us a bit about the victim then, Blake Upton.
1: Uh, The victim is a famous archaeologist who has been to Egypt several times and he's brought back beautiful artifacts. His uh, his, um, expeditions are sponsored by Lord Belford, who doesn't want to go to Egypt himself, but he is very interested in Egyptology and he, he wants his name to be synonymous with these marvelous artifacts that are displayed at the British Museum. And Blake Upton, he's well-known. He's a member of the Archaeological Society. He's married, but he doesn't have any children. And generally, he's well-liked.
0: The method of death is unusual,
1: to say the least. Uh, Say something about that, please. Well, if you're going to write about Egypt, the method of death has to be unusual. You know, like death by scarab or something. You know, it can be your run-of-the-mill gunshot or, you know, knock on the head. So Blake Upton is killed by exacerbation, which is basically removing a part of his brain through the nostril with a special tool that the Egyptian had used during the mummification process.
0: That is indeed unusual. In fact, I was amazed. I, I remember reading about ancient Egypt at one point, but I don't think I ever paid close attention to the process of mummification because I didn't even know that such a thing was possible.
1: Well, they used to remove all the organs before they mummified the body. So this was just something that they routinely did. They used to extract the brain through the nostrils.
0: Yes, I knew that they removed the organs, but I, and I suppose I assumed that they removed the brain. I, it, but that process, I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, with um, ancient technology? You know, it's, it's really a... Uh, how would you even come up with that?
1: The ancient technology just basically came in the form of a bamboo stick. It was just like a little scooper.
0: (laughs) Tell us a bit about the suspects. It turns out that quite a few people have a motive to remove Blake from this earth. You don't have to tell us anything that will incriminate one person over another, just who they are.
1: Well, we discover that the murder took place before the sea witch docked in Southampton. So everybody aboard the vessel is a suspect. And of course, you can't have that many suspects because that would just crowd the field. So Jason and Daniel eliminate a good number of the suspects immediately. But every member of the archaeological team and several other people aboard the Sea which have a very good reason for wanting Blake Upton dead. And that's all I'm going to say about that.
0: The novels move around quite a bit, uh, although until this latest one, they remain in a relatively narrow group of English villages. Uh, as the titles of the book suggest, there are corpses found at a couple of local manors, an abbey, an isolated mill, a Romany camp, and a pair of graves, one occupied, the other not yet. How do you pick your settings, and do they pose any research challenges for you? Well,
1: I think that what, what I really start with is a good title. Because the title has to be intriguing, and there's so many novels set in Victoria, England, so many murder mysteries, that a reader has to see the title and be intrigued enough to read the synopsis. So I tend to come up with something that I think will give somebody pause. Like if you see a title, something like Murder in a Grave, you stop and think, how do you kill somebody in the grave if they're already dead? So perhaps that will get you interested enough to check out the book. And I do have a little bit of a fascination with churches and crypts and ruins and cemeteries. So you could see that throughout my books.
0: And what about the research itself? You you mentioned that you did do extensive research, and that's obvious in the books. How do you go about it?
1: You know, there's just so much information out there, and usually it's one of these things where you totally go down the rabbit hole, because you start researching one thing, and then you stumble stumble onto something else, and then you stumble onto another thing, and you just learn all these wonderful things that you never knew about, and sometimes these things you just want to incorporate them into the story like for example like the mummy unwrapping parties and the mummy wreath and things like that I mean I just came across that as part of my research but I had to put that in there because that was just such a fun little tidbit so I mean the research is easy enough it just takes time.
0: Do you do a lot of it online or do you get books from the library
1: what do you how do you start? Well, most of, uh, most of my research happens online, and also I know a lot of stuff just by reading and um, from reading previous books, so a lot of the time I will have an idea for something and it's already there, but I just need to go and verify my facts and learn more about it just to, to be accurate and to make it sound more interesting.
0: What would you like people to take away from the Redmond and Hayes novels?
1: All I want is for them to have an enjoyable reading experience, and what I really want is for them to get to the end and say, oh, I did not see that coming.
0: (laughs) I have to tell you, I did that more often with your books than I have done with, I think, almost any detective series. I mean, by the time I read The Fifth or Sixth, I was at least starting to pick up the relevant clues, even if I didn't quite the thing together properly, I would say, oh, that, that must be important somehow. Um, so congratulations. That's be the
1: best compliment, you know, that somebody can give an author is to say that the story was unique, and that it wasn't predictable, and that you really felt satisfied by the time you finished the book.
0: Do you plot out your novels in advance?
1: Nope. They so say, come you come to me as I, as I go. Mm hmm.
0: Well, good for you, uh, because it's very impressive how well they, they um, hang together once you get to the end. Thank you so much. So what are you working on now? I think you have a new book coming out in
1: June. Is that right? In this series. I have a new Redmond and Hayes coming out in June. It's called Murder in Half Moon Street, and this is a sort of a locked room mystery. And I'm also working on Nicole Rayburn book four, which is tentatively entitled The Lost Tower. And um, I'm writing them simultaneously. And um, I, I've actually already, well, I have already written the eighth book in the Redman and Hayes. And I have just finished book 12 in the Redmond and Hayes series. Called oh, Murder my goodness. Of
0: really? Wow. So we're good through the next year at least. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think you have a Nicole Rayburn that just came out, right? Amazon wrote to me and said that. Did I get right? I have
1: right? a Nicole Rayburn book that's coming out uh in the first week of may called the shadow bride
0: all right yes okay so that was the one that they alerted me to so that's coming out in may and and then redmond and hayes uh, is uh, eight is coming out in june
1: yes i try to stagger them Mm you know so they don't come out at the same time
0: that makes a lot of sense uh thank you so much for sharing your time with us today arena
1: thank you so much for speaking with me
0: And Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Irina Shapiro about Murder on the Sea Witch and its predecessors in the Redmond and Hayes series. Find out more about her at www.irinashapiroauthor.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.